I have, uh, that song has just been such a blessing over these last couple of weeks, um, getting to think through all that we have in Christ. And it's my hope that as we dive into the word together today, we will get to understand that a bit more fully. Um, I don't feel like I can totally do justice in, in one sermon about all that there is in Christ, all the things he sees us through, all the things he's taking us to. Uh, but we get to rejoice that he is our Savior, and we are here to worship him and seek to align our lives with him. So let's pray one more time as we dive into the word. God, thank you for what you've done through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that you are moving in our midst, the way that you are drawing us out of our own sinful condition into a life of holiness with you. Lord, we know that we will never be perfect this side of heaven, this side of paradise with you. But God, by your grace, by your spirit, Jesus, by your sacrifice, we get to be there with you. And so, God, I pray over these next few minutes that by your spirit you would lead us and you would grant us understanding and application of your word. Help us to understand all that you have for us and all that we should do to align our lives fully with you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, there are a variety of times when things are just a bit better shaken. And that can be a matter of opinion. James Bond would say that the best drinks are shaken and not, not stirred. Taylor Swift would tell us that we need to shake off all of those bad influences, all of those bad people in our lives. If you like balsamic vinegar dressing like we do at my in-law's house, you know that it has to be shaken and it has to be poured out and it has to be eaten quickly. Otherwise, all of those flavors dissipate. Even the Beatles might tell us the best way to dance is to shake it up, followed by a little twist and a shout, right? Rick didn't know we, I was talking about that until this morning. He's like, oh, man, we could have done that song today. But there are also times when things that are shaken have a greater impact. But I, I think it's important for us to recognize that that shaking process for, for the people, for the objects, for the things that are going through that shaking process, it can be profoundly painful. It can be difficult. And yet it's an opportunity for growth as, as through shaking processes, things get revealed and other things get covered. And as we continue our study in the gospel of John this week, we're going to consider a type of shaking as we look at a shakeup at the temple in John chapter two. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, um, we're going to look at, verse, at the verses that Tabitha read a little earlier, starting in verse 13, and we'll, we'll look through that entire passage. But let me just give us a little bit of a context. If you remember last week, we looked at and we considered Jesus, the sign of Jesus turning the water into wine in, at the wedding in Cana. And we know that we, based on what John tells us, that happened timeline-wise three days after the events of, that happened just right before that, when he's calling his disciples out. So we have a little bit of a timeline. And then all of a sudden, in this next passage, John just kind of jumps. 
We don't know exactly how this passage relates to the others. We just know that John put it here for a reason. In fact, a lot of commentators would say we really need to consider all of John 2, 3, and 4 together because of what he's communicating together. So we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, we'll get to unpack that a bit more fully. But one thing we do know is that it is now Passover. We don't know when that wedding took place, except that it was three days after the calling of the disciples. And now we know that Jesus is in Passover, which is in the springtime, is close to the time when we would celebrate Easter. And as Jesus goes to the temple, he finds some things that need to be shaken up. In fact, as we look at this today, we're going to glean, I think, a couple of principles. And the first principle that we're going to glean is that Jesus shakes up our religious conventions. We see this in verses 13 to 17. Let me read this for us one more time. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out all of the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So I want you to imagine a scene. Let's contextualize this for us for just a moment. Imagine what it would have been like if as you walked in the building this morning, you opened those doors and greeters were yelling at you saying, get your bulletin, get your 25 cents a bulletin, get your bulletin. Come on, get your bulletin. Right. Or ushers were calling out saying, hey, reserve your pew. Only five dollars. Only five dollars. Come on, reserve your pew. You've got to get your seats fast. And deacons, maybe they were standing at the door saying, alms for the poor. Help out. There are people in need. You need to help out. $5, $10, $100, any amount will help. Will you help? Imagine being accosted by all of that on your way in. It wouldn't feel much like a worshipful setting. And that's the scene we get to walk into as Jesus steps into the temple. And the challenge, here's the thing that I think is important for us to recognize. The challenge is that everything Jesus ran across were things that were ordered by Scripture. They were just in the wrong place. You see, it was, there was a temple tax. People were required to pay essentially like a half shilling tax. So typically, two people would go together because they didn't have a half shilling coin. So they would just take one coin and pay it together. So they needed to do that, but they needed to use only temple money. So you had to have money changers to take the money from the Roman stuff to the temple stuff. And there was often a little bit of profit. And a lot of the commentators said it wasn't about an underhanded or, or a, a wicked business. It was just the way that scripture had laid things out and how they were interpreting things. And then there were sacrifices. So people, either, so people who either did not own animals or land had to purchase them. So in some ways, it was a service to the congregants for them to make animals available as close to the sanctuary as possible. The problem was that all this was happening in the temple court. They were all, it was all happening there. It was an area that was supposed to be reverent and worshipful, and now it felt like a flea market. 
commentators noted that at one point in time, this marketplace had been outside of the city. In fact, it had been on the other side of what's called the Kidron Valley. So worshipers would have to go there to exchange their money. They would have to go there to buy animals for the sacrifice if they didn't have any of their own. And so in some ways, some, for some reason, certain religious leaders decided, hey, let's move it inside the temple complex. Let's make it easy. And we might even say they made it pragmatic. It was practical. Why make people go all the way across the Kidron Valley to go get their animal or their pigeon or their, to exchange their coins? Let's just do it here. They did what was pragmatic in order to help people worship. And so this place of worship became a market of mayhem. One of the commentators I looked at this week, his name is Bruce Milne. He said, instead of solemn dignity in the murmur of prayer, there was the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. And instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Not what we would expect when we entered into the temple of God. And so Jesus enters this place and he is appalled. And he takes some materials there, fashions a whip and begins shaking things up. He begins turning over tables, driving out animals. In fact, John even comments that the disciples sometime later remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is mindful that worship of God is to be reverent and even solemn. And that's not to say that it can't be enjoyable. But I think it's important for us to recognize that we can so often get lulled into habits and patterns that we think might be helpful. When in the end they can miss the point. And we can certainly allow things to creep in, like moving the money changers and the tables for all these sacrifices, animals, inside the court rather than outside. We can allow certain things to creep in to distract us from the true object of our worship, and that is the worship of the triune God. That is the worship of Jesus Christ who gave up so much for us. And I think it's important to note that when we think of religious activity or religion, it's really a misnomer. It may not mean what we think it means. Because religion is what we do or devise to try to appease God. Religion is this upward oriented, hey God, I want to make you happy, so let me check off this box. I think you'll be happy if I go to synagogue or if I go to church. I think you'll be happy if I give an offering. I think you'll be happy if I read my Bible. I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think. And really all of that activity, none of it's bad. But from the wrong perspective, from the wrong heart, It's just religious activity. It's religious emptiness. In fact, as I was thinking about this, you could have two people doing the very same things, reading scripture, singing hymns, or contemporary songs, spending time together in fellowship, and both doing it, one from an attitude of religious activity, the other one from an attitude of worship. The the religious one is empty. The one of, who's in an act of it. And they look almost the same. But it's a matter of the heart. 
So I think in our times of worship, as we think about this, as I think, well, what does this mean for us? How, is, how might Jesus be shaking up? What might he be doing in our context? Are there habits or patterns that he would turn over? Are there conveniences that he would cause us to remove? Are there places where we are being pragmatic rather than biblical? So I want to just raise a couple of questions. I don't have answers to these things, but I want us just to think through some of these things. And I promise I will offend some people. I will step on toes. And if you disagree with me, let's talk about it. But let's think about this. What about the live stream? I know for those of you guys who are at home, you're like, what? You're talking about us? So the question I have is, is that hindering or is it helping our worship? Has it introduced a convenience that is cheapening the value of our assembly together? <laughs> like I said, I don't know the answers to this, but I wrestle with it. I have benefited from the fact that we have a live sermon. You guys know the day after Christmas I was sick. Carl stood right here and preached my sermon. And I sat on my couch at home. Sick as a dog. Grateful that I could participate that way. But at the same time, when it's not out of necessity, is it just religious box checking instead of the gathering of God's people? You know, and I know some of us, we might think, well, let's just, it's so tough to get the kids ready in the morning. I mean, those of you guys with little kids or those of you guys who have grown kids remember how difficult it is sometimes to get kids out the door. And I wish I could say I understood because, frankly, my whole time as a pastor, I've gone to church early and it's been Danielle who gets the kids up and comes to church. Thanks be to God for Danielle. It would be easy just to let the, oh, let the kids stay in their pajamas. We'll just gather around and we'll mumble the words while people there are singing. And... But for those without kids, I recognize that life is getting busier and busier and busier. And it seems like everything is creeping in. And we sometimes just need a day of rest. And isn't it a little more convenient just to stay in your pajamas and pop into church online for an hour and pop out. My hope is that our times together, going through the hassle, if you will, of getting up, getting dressed, coming together, looking presentable so that we can be around one another, putting on a little deodorant, will be challenging, refreshing, life-giving, and encouraging. But doing this together is part of the point of what it means to be a church. We talked about this before, but the Greek word that we translate as church means assembly. The modern question of a lot of ecclesiological people today is, is virtual church church? Is it assembling? And I would argue no. Because to be together, we get to see one another, even if with our half-covered faces. Which brings me to my next thing to question, and that is masks. This seems to go hand in hand with the live stream because masks become a good excuse to stay home. 
I hate how my glasses get fogged up. I can't breathe. I can't, I can't, I can't. But thankfully, I don't want to... I'm not a, a superstitious person, so I'm not going to knock on wood. But supposedly next week, the 21st, our mask mandate is going away. Yay! So we get to see each other face to face. So let me move on from that. But let, let me think about one other thing. And that is membership. That is membership. It, this is something that as, an, as elders, we've been talking about for nearly a year. We've been looking at our membership book and membership process and all these things. We've been trying to, what does it mean to be a member of a church? Is it biblical? Is it meaningful? And if yes, are we treating it as both biblical and meaningful? I I do have opinions. I believe membership is biblical, and I believe it should be meaningful. But I wonder, have we cheapened it? Have we considered people part of the church who are not fully committed part of the church? Are we treating insiders like outsiders? Are we just neglecting people? Are we allowing people to use their God-given gifts and talents as an act of worship to Him and service to one another? What are we, you and I, doing to, together to reach out to those who have not assembled with us in a while? The pandemic has wreaked havoc, and there are some people who have not fellowshiped here in a while. Have we reached out to them? Do they sense the value of their commitment, their covenant with us together. I must admit, I've dropped the ball a few times. I try to text every now and then, call from time to time, but it's easy just to say life gets busy. You see, I, I think it's important for us to consider a couple of scriptures, a couple of passages that think about what is the body of Christ, what is the church. Because the, 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 the scripture uses three different metaphors typically to talk about the church. One is a body. And I'm not going to read that passage right now, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 30. But you have this image of a body, a human body that is made up of a bunch of different parts. And in order for, those, for that body to work together, all the parts have to be committed to one another, working together. But another image that scripture gives us is that of a house. We see that in Hebrews 3, 6 and also uh, 1 Peter 2, 5. A house, I mean, you, those of us who, who live in homes, you know that it takes a lot of stuff to put a house together there. If you're living in the Middle East, you've got a brick house with lots of bricks and cylinder and cement and all these things. Or if, like a lot of us here, we've got stick houses that it's a good thing we can't always see the sticks, but we're glad they're there when we're, you know, when earthquakes happen, which is rare. But we're glad that we're there when you're on the second floor of your house and you're not falling through to the bottom. We're glad it's all working together. It's a commitment of every part together to make the house whole. But also, we see in Scripture a picture of a temple in 1 Corinthians 3.16. This idea of something that is set apart for sacred worship of God. It's not the building. We talked about that before. The church is not the building. We call this Poolsville Baptist Church. But really, this is just the building of the church of Poolsville Baptist. This is the building of the people. This is the building of the congregation. You know, each of these imply interdependence and community. And there are visible and hidden elements, but they all have value. 
So we could go on. And, and in fact, I'd love, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. After church or sometime this week, send me an email or text. Let's talk. What are some other things that Jesus might be shaking up? Or even in these things, maybe I'm totally off base. And it's okay. I was so grateful. Yesterday we had that uh, wonderful um, men's breakfast. We had like 31, 32 guys gather in the cafe. It was a fun time of worship, just fellowshipping together. And I got a lovely email from a gentleman afterwards saying, I had a great time, but I was offended by this. And I'm so grateful he wrote the letter. I'm so grateful he just didn't let it fester. So if there's something that you disagree with, let me know. Let's talk. But, but let's consider, so in this passage, we've seen how Jesus shakes up our religious conventions. But as we continue, we also get to see how Jesus shakes up our spiritual focus. You see, in response to what Jesus did, in response to him turning over the tables, driving out those animals, some of the religious leaders there are appalled. And their response is this. Look in verses 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture that the word scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And I love how John kind of gives us a little insight into the situation there. He, he helps us see what's going on. And then he says, and later on this happened. And so his disciples remembered this moment. But there's a point at which we can see that the Jewish leaders were completely justified in their response. I mean, imagine what would happen if someone came in here and said, Pastor Joel, elders, congregate, you guys are doing all this wrong. And we would be like, whoa, 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 wait, who are you to come into this place and tell us what to do? Bless you. Because these leaders, they were the ones who were leading what we might call the cultic practices, the religious practices, that not to say they were a cult, but the, the activity of the synagogue. They were the ones appointed to lead in worship. It didn't help that they didn't believe all the hype about Jesus, but in response to what he was doing, they demanded an answer. And Jesus gives them what, what one commentator called an enigmatic response. He's a bit vague. And there's a sense in which he is replacing the temple, the building, with himself. And that theme of replacement is something that we see over and over and over again in the book of John. He is replacing worship at a place, at a location, with worship of a person. That same commentator, Milne, reflects on it this way. He says, Jesus', is, Jesus reply is suitably enigmatic. And he offers them a visible attestation, albeit a somewhat puzzling one from their perspective. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. This temple is deliberately ambiguous, referring either to a shrine for worship or the shrine of the God's dwelling place the shrine of God's dwelling place within a human person or body. And so I wonder if we fully grasp all that we have in Christ. You see, in the temple, the priests would facilitate people's 
religious obligations. They would provide teaching. They would help people make sacrifices. Annually, on the, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would come and offer a sacrifice to cover all of the sins of the people for an entire year. And at the time when we find Jesus in the temple, it's Passover, and they're celebrating what God did to free the people of Israel from Egypt, free them from slavery, from that bondage that they had there. But here in Christ, we find that He is our mediator, not some religious leader. He is the one who offered His life as a redemptive sacrifice for all time. His death, burial, and resurrection covered our sin for all Eternity, not just for a year, for all time. His sacrifice freed us from the slavery to sin. You see, it's not about a, our performance in a place. It's about His perfect sacrifice. And our assembly is intended to be focused on Him. Our affections are to be directed toward Him. As the hymn writer says, hallelujah, what a savior. This week I had an opportunity to read a, a really tiny book entitled Reformed Piety by a, a guy named Joel Beakey and Stephen Myers. And it's only 34 pages, but it is packed with comment, content. In fact, I told Danielle I had to hold back. I'm not highlighting the entire 34 page book. But I think there are a couple of valuable snippets on which we can reflect as it, as it pertains to Jesus Christ as the object of our worship. Look at this with me. They write, theologically, piety can be realized only through union and communion with Christ and partaking all of his benefits. For outside of Christ, even the religious person lives for himself. Only in Christ can the pious live as willing servants of their Lord, faithful soldiers of their commander, and obedient children of their Father. It's in Jesus Christ that He gives us the ability to live and serve and obey. He gives us that motivation. He gives us that reason. Elsewhere in the book, they quote a Puritan writer, Cotton Mather, by stating... Uh, Cotton says this. He says, "Exhibit as much of Christ as you can of a glory. Exhibit as much of Christ as you can of a glorious Christ. Yea, let the motto upon your whole ministry be: Christ is all. It's not about the place. It's about the person. As we mentioned last week, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Him." So Jesus shakes up our religious conventions and our spiritual focus onto himself. And this shakeup in the temple, it elicited some responses from the people who were nearby. And I think it challenges us to do the same. So as I look at this, as I consider this passage and the one we looked at last week, I think there are three responses that we can have. One is forbearance. One is fascination. And one is faith. I worked hard to find three words that would go together, three alliterated words. But let's look at these last few words, and we'll talk about that, the last few verses in 23 to 25. John writes, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So one response to this shakeup, one response to what Jesus was doing is forbearance, or we might even say resistance. We see this in those religious leaders. In, in chapter 2, verse 18, you see the religious leaders, they resisted Jesus. They, they liked the status quo. They liked the control that they have more than surrendering to what Jesus was doing, more than paying attention to what he was drawing them to. They were threatened by Jesus and did not respect him for who he is. And the question I have for us is, will we resist Jesus? If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus may constantly be working to shake up things in your life and mine. Will we submit those things to him? Or are we going to stand firm and say, no, Jesus, I like it my way. I'm comfortable enough with salvation on your terms, but I'm going to live my life on my terms. And I would really beg to question, maybe that's not salvation. But beyond that, if you're not yet a follower of Christ... Are you going to continue to resist all that Jesus is doing? Are you going to continue to resist when he shakes things up to get your attention? Are you going to continue to resist? Think, I'm comfortable. I'll do this on my own terms. But there's another response that we get to see, and that is fascination. We see this in those in verses 23 to 25. The people who saw the signs, they were like, wow, Jesus, the miracle man. Let's follow him. They essentially saw what he was doing and jumped on his bandwagon. And yet Jesus could tell that their faith was insincere. Their faith was like the seed that was thrown on rocky soil. It would blossom briefly and then get choked out by life's concerns or get taken away. They wanted a miracle man and not a savior. And I think... Jesus recognized their faith was so shallow that it wouldn't stand the test of time. And their faith was a faith of convenience. They're saying essentially, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you bless me. I'll follow you as long as it feels good. I'll follow you as long as it's easy. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you're trendy. But as soon as you go out, no, I'm not there. Is this the way that we respond to Jesus? Are we fascinated more by the idea of Jesus than we are of who he really is? But there's one final and I think better response, and that is faith. And we see this all the way back in 2.11. We didn't read that passage. This is, that's not part of what we're looking at today. But in chapter 2, verse 11, if you have your Bibles, look, look back at that briefly with me. This is, remember, right after uh, Jesus turned the water into wine and the bridegroom was like, wow, this is the best stuff. And in verse 11, it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Not because they saw a sign, not because they saw a fab, but they understood that this was so much more. Several commentators have suggested that John put the encounter at the temple right after the changing of the water into wine for a reason. And it's as though he's contrasting the faith of the people up north in Galilee, the faith of his disciples, with the people down in Jerusalem, with the religious leaders. 
And because of, the, because of that, I think it's important to consider these together. You see, in Cana, Jesus replaced the water that was used for purification. Remember, these were big water jars that they would hand wash their hands. I would have loved those. They washed their hands over and over. They washed their utensils, all those things. And he converted it. He changed it completely into wine. Now this vessel for purification became the symbol of his body and blood, his sacrifice for us in some ways. And here... In Jerusalem, he's replacing the temple as the place of mediation between God and humanity with himself. He is replacing all of our old conventions with himself. And so the question becomes, what will we do with that? Will we continue to enter into empty religious practices or will we engage in a genuine faith that is centered upon and finds itself in Jesus Will we continue to go through religious motions in hopes of doing enough good to appease God? Or will we entrust our eternity, our eternity to His finished work on the cross? How will you and I respond to Jesus? Are we going to forbearance, resistance, fascination? Ooh, He's kind of cool. Or genuine faith? And my hope is that we would allow God to shake up things in our lives individually and in us corporately so that we might together be the people that God has called us to be. Oh, that God would do an an amazing work in us and through us that he might be glorified here in Poolsville and everywhere he calls us to go. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the way that you challenge us by the things that you've allowed to be written there, things that you've called us to study. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to trust in what you've done, to trust in what you've accomplished, and to align our lives with you. Father, I pray that you would bring to the surface those things that you'd like us to repent of, to turn aside from whether it's religious practices or even spiritual activities that we think are helpful but may not be what you've called us to. But God, in our own lives individually, I pray that you would help us to see where we're trusting in our own self-reliance rather than in the finished work of what you did on the cross. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us to believe, to trust you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.